Hello, Rebels. You know, I, uh, I'm pleased to tell you that we flattened the curve. In fact, in Toronto, the number of new pandemic cases is the lowest it's been since March. And Toronto's public health officer made a stunning admission. Anyone who dies for any reason at all, if they also have the virus, it's chalked up as a virus death, even if that's not what they died from. So I don't even know if there are any virus cases in the whole city. I take you through the official stats and show you that now, five months after the virus came to town, only now does the city council want to wake, make wearing masks mandatory. What a laugh. I'll take you through it all. But before I do, may I invite you to become a Rebel News Plus subscriber. It's eight bucks a month. That's 80 bucks for the whole year. We give you a two month discount, as you can see. 80 bucks for the year. That's cheaper than Netflix. You get my daily video version of this podcast. Sheila Gunn-Reed has a show. David Menzies has a show. But I think the most important reason to sign up is just to support independent news. We don't take any money from Justin Trudeau. We rely on viewers and listeners like you. Okay, here's today's pandemic podcast. Tonight, Toronto virus cases fall to a new low, but the left-wing mayor says he wants to make masks mandatory. It's June 30th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Great news for anyone who was worried about the coronavirus pandemic. We have flattened the curve. We actually did that two months ago. Now the curve barely exists. Look at that. This is the number of cases of the virus in Toronto, the biggest city in Canada. It's almost July now. The number of new cases in the city hasn't been this low since early March. The peak of the pandemic in Toronto was April 15th, when there were 293 new cases. The last few days has been bouncing around between 7 and 26. Seven cases, not 700, seven. The greater Toronto area has more than 6 million people in it. Uh, those are cases, so if someone tests positive when they get tested, but many people get the coronavirus and show no symptoms. They actually don't even know they have it. So I think a more useful measure is how many people die from it, how many people are in, in the hospital, in intensive care, that sort of thing. Those shows the serious cases. Every death is a tragedy to the deceased and their family, of course. The death of someone who is 90 is still deeply sad, but without diminishing that, 90 is still a pretty full life. Of course, if you're 90, you want to live to be 91, 95, 100, whatever. The average age of the deceased in Canada from this virus is over 80. That's the gray bars there on this chart. And it's not random. This virus basically kills people who are in seniors' homes. Now, I don't want any group or another to die from it, of course, but I think it's noteworthy and encouraging, or at least useful, to note that in the entire city of Toronto, greater Toronto area, six and a half million people, there have been a total of three fatalities under the age of 40. Those are the gray blips. They're so small you can barely see them. 
Now, seven people have passed away between the age 40 and 49. So, grand total, in the fourth largest city in North America, that's Toronto, grand total of 10 people under age 50 have died from the virus in the last five months. 10 people! So crossing the street is more dangerous in Toronto. Uh, for comparison, the Toronto police have a handy website dedicated to gun crimes. I know. How can there even be gun crime anymore? Didn't Trudeau ban guns like two or three times now? Uh, according to the Toronto Police, there have been 211 shootings in Toronto this year so far. 93 injuries, 22 deaths. That is 19% more shootings than last year, 47% more shooting deaths than last year. Obviously, it's mainly young people. You could call it an epidemic. It's certainly more deadly than the coronavirus, at least if you're under 50 in Toronto. Here's the stats for the whole province of Ontario now. I could do this for every province. It's the same across the country, except there are some provinces that literally have not had a single death. Uh, this is the death toll in Ontario itself. Um, I think it's one person uh, yesterday. Again, I'm very sorry for that person and their family. But in the province of Ontario, population 15 million one person passed away yesterday. One. I don't know who it was. Statistically speaking, it was likely someone over the age of 80. There still are new cases, but they seem to be foreigners coming to Canada with the virus, especially temporary foreign workers being brought into Canada to work cheaper than Canadians, which I find odd given Canada's extreme unemployment rate. Uh, here's a story from yesterday. Migrant advocacy group demands Ontario shut down agricultural sector amid COVID-19 spike. The advocacy organization, Justice for Migrant Workers, is calling for an immediate shutdown of Ontario's entire agricultural industry until every workplace is fully sterilized to stop the spread of COVID-19 amongst its workers. This is racism, said Justice for Migrant Workers organizers Chris Ramsarup. This fiasco has to end. Hey, so just shut down all the food in Ontario. Um, no, Chris, I don't think it's racism. I think it's a virus. But I will accept the claim that the Temporary Foreign Workers Program itself has a tinge of racism to it, maybe even systemic racism, as the left says, because it brings in foreign workers, always visible minorities, specifically and explicitly to work for less money than Canadian citizens are allowed to do under law, as in it is legal to pay these foreign people less. So they're not slaves. I mean, we still pay them. They're definitely not slaves. Uh, they're more like indentured servants, and they are all visible minorities. Now, they're not being infected on purpose, of course, but they're usually bringing infections with them into Canada. And of course, being indentured workers, they often live together in bunkhouse-style accommodations just to be cheap. Again, something that Canadians would likely not accept or even legally be allowed to do. But hey, your strawberries and apples cost five cents less a pound, so it's worth it, right? Uh, look at this, 300 Mexican workers in Canada have the virus. Their government pushed pause on the program, not ours. Trudeau and the provinces are going full tilt with the cheap foreign labor. I don't understand it other than corporate greed by farm operators who would rather pay a few bucks an hour less than hiring Canadians. But what's the cost to our larger society, our larger economy, if the pandemic lockdown is extended by weeks or months because some corporate farms don't want to hire locally? And I get the odd email from farmers saying, well, yeah, don't pick on us. L listen, there, there's... 20-25% effective unemployment in Canada. You can hire Canadians to pick some crops. It, it really is not 
um, a high-skilled job. I'm not saying it's a low-skilled job. I'm saying you can train Canadians. We've been doing agriculture in Canada for 400 years. So yeah, it's a problem, but it's a very specific problem with very obvious solutions. Stop bringing in cheap foreign migrant workers. Close the border to virus hotspots as we should have done four months ago. Maybe put Canadian workers first. I'd pay five cents a pint more for strawberries, would you? But look at this. It's a tweet from Toronto's public health officer. Individuals who have died with COVID-19, but not as a result of COVID-19, are included in the case counts for COVID-19 deaths in Toronto. <laughs> what? Let me read that again, slowly. This is a real tweet, verified. Individuals who have died with COVID-19, but not as a result of COVID-19, are included in the case counts for COVID-19 deaths in Toronto. So, so if you had the virus, but you weren't sick from it, certainly not in the hospital or intensive care, maybe you didn't even know you had it, but if you had it at all, but died for any other reason, it was marked as a virus death. It would be like having a cold and then getting hit by a car or shot by a gun and it being chalked up to the virus. So even the falling, num the falling numbers I showed you earlier, they're greatly padded. So not only is the pandemic over, it was probably over weeks ago. One more stat. This is the list of causes of death in Canada. Cancer's number one, heart disease number two. I think accidents are number four, actually. It's interesting. Suicide's the ninth most common. But the latest stats for this are from 2018. In that year, 3,811 people committed suicide. What a tragedy. I bet for this year, 2020, it's going to be double that because of the pandemic, the lockdown, the unemployment, the stress, the mania in the media, the shutdown of life. But look at the number for influenza and pneumonia, the flu. Each year, it's the sixth largest cause of death in Canada. 8,511 deaths in 2018. 8,511. And as of yesterday, according to the federal government, the total count of deaths from the virus is 8,566. So almost exactly the same. And that includes padding the numbers. Anyone who had the virus gets counted. And the pandemic is over. I suppose there will be a few more deaths. Certainly public health officials will continue their policies of calling any death a virus death for funding and political reasons. They just admitted it. And yet look at this. It's June 30th. Today the year is half over. The pandemic is done. You saw the curve. But look at this. Well, good morning. Uh, today, <coughs> excuse me, today, City Council will consider a report from Dr. Eileen Davila to effectively make it mandatory for people to wear masks or face coverings inside businesses or public facilities. Dr. Davila's recommendation, worked out with City Legal after careful consideration of the legal landscape, would give clear direction on face coverings to help stop the spread of COVID-19. So masks will be made mandatory a, a week from now? So in, in July, the pandemic arrived in Toronto on January 25th, by the way. That was the first case of flu in from China. Five months ago. It's run its course now. And only now they're bringing in a mask requirement in July? They didn't close the borders. They, they still haven't closed the borders. They could have made masks mandatory, I suppose, if they actually believed masks stopped the virus. And I suppose in some cases, like close contact indoors, it does. Taiwan, they have masks for everybody. But to wait only until now? What on earth are they doing? 
They're being politicians, that's what, re always remember that. Look, public health officers may have a medical degree, but they're not like doctors who see patients. They don't treat individual patients. It would be nuts to wait five months after diagnosing a problem before you prescribe a prescription. These aren't people acting like real doctors. These are just politicians who happen to have a medical degree. Like politicians, they lie. Like politicians, they lust for power. He, here's the queen of them, Teresa Tam. I think the public has to know this is one of the worst case scenarios in terms of an infectious disease outbreak in that their cooperation is sought. If there are people who are non-compliant, there are definitely uh, laws and, and public health um, powers that can quarantine people in mandatory settings. It's potential you could track people, put bracelets on their uh, arms, have police and other setups to ensure quarantine is undertaken. Yeah, no thanks. It's all of them. Here's Trump's guy, Dr. Fauci, admitting that he lied a few months ago when he said masks didn't work because he wanted all the masks just for the doctors. You said it's late, and I got um, a, a newspaper article that, that as late as March 31st, there was no consensus on wearing masks. That the, and the president, as you know, relies on your, your expertise. Do you now regret not advising people more forcefully to wear masks earlier? Okay, we're going to play that game. Um, let me explain to you what happened back then. Should be a yes or a no. No, there's more than a yes or no by the tone of your question. I don't regret that because let me explain to you what happened. At that time, there was a paucity of equipment that our healthcare providers needed who put themselves daily in harm's way of taking care of people who are ill. We did not want to divert masks and PPE away from them to be used by the people. Okay, I've got now that we have enough, we I, recommend. I, 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 I think that's clearly what happened in Canada too. Trudeau gave all our masks to China. So Theresa Tam said masks didn't work. They make you sick. Putting a mask on an asymptomatic person um, is not beneficial. So masks make you sick. But now, not only do masks not make you sick, but you have to wear them uh, under the law. Even though the pandemic is over now, you know, maybe we should have worn the masks in, in February, March, April. I'm sorry, my friends, you can't believe a single word these power-hungry politicians say. And if they'd lie to you about life and death issues, what else would they lie to you about? Last word, do you actually believe these politicians will follow the mask rules themselves when they think the cameras aren't on? Stay with us for more. These days, a week can feel like a year in politics, especially in the United States, uh, whether it's the pandemic or a Black Lives Matter protest, Antifa riots, statues coming down, even a threat to the Mount Rushmore monuments, once unthinkable, now nothing less than the Democratic Party itself tweets uh, a story suggesting that all four faces on Mount Rushmore, including Abraham Lincoln, the emancipator of four million slaves, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the first U.S. president to dine with a black man in the White House, George Washington, the founder of America itself, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote that all men are equal before God, 
Imagine that. That is now in the conventional discourse that Mount Rushmore itself should be dynamited. Well, things are crazy. Donald Trump, he tweeted a cryptic tweet. The lone warrior, exclamation point. What does it mean? Well, someone who well, might have an insight who? is our friend Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large of Breitbart.com. Joel, great to see you again. Good to be with you. What does that mean, the lone warrior? Does Donald Trump feel alone? Does he feel like the party has abandoned him, the people? The What does that mean? Well, I can't speculate as to what the president was thinking. I think that many people have said that Trump is the only thing that stands between America and the mob. When you have the Democratic Party, as you say, tweeting something crazy, I don't know what was in their minds either. I think they just will tweet about white supremacy ad infinitum and try to associate it with Trump or, in this case, Mount Rushmore or whatever. You have one guy who's basically got the courage to stand up to it, and I think that's what he was conveying. They tweeted a little while later that they're not after me, they're after you, and I'm just in the way. I think that was more or less what he meant with the original tweet. I don't uh, know exactly what he meant, but I, I do think also that when he said the lone warrior, he may have been thinking about the political situation he's in. He's being attacked from the left and also from the right. On the left, obviously, you've got Black Lives Matter, the Democrats, the media, the tech companies, everybody, the usual suspects that are always attacking him. And then on the right, you've got some who have said, well, he needs to be doing more. He needs to take firmer action against Antifa and restore law and order. Well, law and order has actually been restored. Trump has done a pretty good job at that. He's also done what he can do within the limits of his constitutional power. He, he can't really just march into downtown Seattle with federal troops. Theoretically, he can. Politically, it's basically just impossible. And that's pretty much the extent of, of what Trump can do, uh, what, he, what he's done so far. And if you look around the country, the riots have actually calmed down. The statue attacks have also largely stopped. Number one, because Trump issued an executive order on it. And number two, because Democrats started to realize it looked terrible for the party. I don't know what the internal polls were on the statues. We know public polls show that Americans don't even want the Confederate statues removed. People tend to think that what's up there for the sake of history should stay there. And if you're going to take it down, you should do it peacefully and properly, not through mobs and vigilantism and vandalism. So the American public are on the president's side on this one. And so I think the Democrats have basically sent the word out that if you keep doing this, you're going to reelect Trump. So I think he feels perhaps a little bit in battle because Republicans are saying he needs to do more, but he's done the extent of what he can do and he's been successful. They're just not seeing success because, number one, I think there are certain commentators who are certainly piling on for their own reasons. And number two, I think that people aren't showing the success. It's also been very traumatic uh, for, for Republicans. The statue attacks have stopped. The riots have mostly stopped, except in a couple of places like Seattle. But... The other thing is people can continue to feel this sort of pressure at work. I mean, I was at the grocery store earlier today just buying groceries, and a kid at the teller had a Black Lives Matter face mask. Now, I'm sure that the business owner does not support Black Lives Matter just because I know the politics in that particular community. But he hires whoever is available to be a cashier or work in the stockroom or whatever. And he's not going to tell people, I suppose, what they can wear politically. But, you know, I have felt like walking out of the store because I don't want to support that. 
but I just ignored it. It's just a kid who doesn't know any better, and I don't want to punish this, the business owner for something that the cashier is wearing. But you have to understand that Trump supporters are encountering this now everywhere. In the workplace online, uh, Michael Flynn's lawyer was, was suspended from Twitter. They've kicked the Donald off of Reddit. We are seeing a purge of conservatives at a variety of institutions. And so even though Trump has done what he can to stop the violence and the disorder, the Democrats and the corporate world who are terrified of democratic pressure are coming down really hard on Republicans and conservatives right now. So people are living in a state of terror, literally. This feels like we're going through a kind of French revolutionary terror. And nobody is, is being guillotined yet, but they did bring a guillotine outside Jeff Bezos' house in Washington, D.C., which just goes to show there's no amount of appeasement you can do to satisfy the mob. Uh, we're in an environment where people are basically being canceled. People are having their careers ended, their speech taken away effectively. And that's what people are reacting to. I think uh, people are angry and they're angry at everybody who is unable to help them get out of it. So to an extent, there's some public sentiment on the right behind some of the criticisms of the president. Although I think they also know he can't do more than he's done. He's the target of all this. So he's in a bit of a bind, and I think it, it probably does feel a little bit alienating. But I think uh, he, what he also knows or ought to know if he doesn't is that there are millions of people who also feel just as isolated. And in a sense, in that isolation, everybody's together. And what they're waiting for is for him to lead Americans out of that and past this present moment. I think you're so right on that. You know, uh, at least social media was gripped by that couple, the McCloskeys, I think their name was, in St. Louis, in a beautiful home, like a, like a stunning home in a private neighborhood with a private gate, private property, and a whole bunch of masked Black Lives Matter protesters broke through the gate and, according to the McCloskeys, came up to their house, threatened them with violence, threatened to burn their house, threatened to kill their dog. Uh, Ma and Pa McCloskey come out, he's got an AR-15, she's got a pistol. And they basically scared away the mob from this glorious house that must be worth five million, ten million bucks. I don't know. And they were instantly demonized and doxxed online by the left. And of course, it was a, it was a, a fabulously splendid, opulent home. But I think all of a sudden, people said, "Oh, the rioting isn't just downtown Seattle, downtown New York City in very Democrat, maybe radical areas." They're coming into the burbs and breaking down the gates. And where are the cops? I don't know. You'd better get a gun. This is end times kind of survivalist stuff. Pick up a gun to save your family kind of stuff. I found that, I mean, obviously, I don't live in a gorgeous home like that. I, but in a way, I sympathize. I, I projected myself into what would I do if they actually came to my leafy home, you know, private family home, a mob like that. And I think maybe that's what you talk about, the feeling of, where's the help, Mr. President? Where's the help for this family? They help themselves. They'll probably be destroyed in some economic or social way, the McCloskeys, because they were such a symbol to the left. But maybe that's what you're talking about, that everyone feels vulnerable. And where's the man pushing back to protect us all and smash these riots? Right. Well, the, the McCloskeys came out with their weapons drawn, and they represented a lot of suburbia, regardless of race, and people in the inner city as well. There's basically been a breakdown of law and order. Gun sales are through the roof, and people are arming themselves 
because the police have withdrawn. They've been demonized. Uh, there is very little they can do without getting into trouble. They do try to respond to crimes in progress. They risk losing their jobs or worse. So the police are backing off and people are terrified because there are mobs of looters and other people coming through. That was a private road, apparently. The home apparently is uh, part of an historic site, a national historic site. And there apparently is a priceless art collection inside the house that the McCloskeys have been uh, collecting for quite some time and restoring and that sort of thing. So they felt there was a real danger to their home and their property. And they came out with weapons. And one of the weapons was the dreaded AR-15 rifle, which you can see how effective it is. He didn't have to point it at anyone. He just had to hold it. And it, it basically deterred people. They say they were being threatened by some of the protesters who were armed, in fact. And the McCloskeys basically speak for a lot of America. Now, they were made fun of in the media. They were attacked by the left. And they've become a kind of symbol of white suburban paranoia. But let me tell you, that paranoia is real. It's based on the fact that looters have destroyed cities and they've attacked homes in some places. I happen to know personally people who are involved in private security who stopped looters from going into private streets and private homes in Los Angeles during the riots last month. And the McCloskeys basically symbolize the future of America, that people are going to be armed and they're going to take the matters into their own hands. It is a miracle that fewer people have been shot, uh, as few people have been shot, because there have been some shootings by protesters of protesters. There was one uh, set of shootings that happened early on against police officers and security guards. And there was a pawn shop owner early on who shot a burglar or two. But aside from that, there haven't been many shootings. There will be, there will be. If this continues, there will be. And I think the president took a risk in sharing the video of that uh, couple, the McCloskeys. But at the same time, he also promoted public order. If people know that attacking homes is, is going to get you shot, they'll stay away from the homes. So um, look, we're in a pretty bad pay place right now in terms of public dialogue and, and civic discourse. The police in some cities are completely demoralized. They've been attacked by politicians. Uh, they're, they're being abandoned by the community. There's silent reservoirs of support. Um, interestingly, particularly among Hispanics who, who, who feel abandoned entirely because they're not really on board with Black Lives Matter and they don't want the police to disappear either. So uh, the, the, the country is in, in a real bad state and it's really going to become a contest. Uh, this election is going to become a contest about who can restore it. It may be that people decide Democrats win the election because these are Democrat mobs and maybe the Democrats can control their mobs if Republicans are in charge, the mobs will continue. That's been the pattern we've seen for the last decade. Every time Republicans win something, the mobs show up. So people not realizing that they'd be rewarding that behavior might simply uh, yield to the blackmail, yield to the terrorism, essentially, and, and vote for Democrats to get rid of the mobs. But what you'll see happen in that case is kind of a slow atrophy of economic and social life as conservatives simply withdraw. So we have to decide in the next few months what kind of country we're going to be. It's not clear to me right now what that decision is going to be. Well, that is terrifying. Now, I don't know my American uh, mid-20th century history that well, but I saw the other day someone said, how did the riots and unrest of 1968 turn out? Oh. Well, you elected Richard Nixon. Um, okay, but America demographically was very different back then. Uh, I think that 
I, I think that this mood is, it, we, they didn't have the mass cancel culture. It wasn't, I don't, I mean, I wasn't around, but it didn't seem as terrifying. Lose your job for saying the wrong word. Lose your job for saying the wrong word 10 years ago in a tweet. Um, I think you're right. There is a terror out there. You see self-denunciations, um, you know, some uh, light-hearted comedian, Jenna Marbles, extremely successful for self-deprecating comedy skits on YouTube, just says, you know what? A bunch of years ago, I did some jokes I'm not proud of. I'd better cancel my entire channel before it's done to me. Like, I, there's, there's almost a suicide, uh, suicidal feeling to the self-denunciation. I don't think that was around in the 60s. It's a, it's a cultural self-doubt of which I've never seen in my lifetime. Is that... Is that precedent of elect a strong man to fix the problems? Was that accurate what happened in 68 and what had happened in 2020? There's a couple of complicating factors in 68. And I don't really address this in, in my book, Red November. But, you know, in general, I, I do present this dilemma you're talking about. I don't get so into 68. Um, but let's talk about 68 for a second. So, yes, you're correct that the riots of 1968 did help Richard Nixon win the presidency. He had two other factors on his side. One, the fact that there was a third party candidate running who was a former Democrat. Remember, the Democrats were all, not all, the Democrats were, well, the segregationists that existed, they were all Democrats. Of course, not all Democrats were segregationists, but segregationists were almost all Democrats. And you had George Wallace break away from the Democratic Party when it abandoned segregation. So there was a small rump of segregationists in the South. Um, he didn't really make much of a wave, and he was uh, shot in the middle of the campaign, unfortunately, although maybe that was his 72 campaign, he was shot. Um, but there was a third party that was taking some support away from Democrats. The other thing is that Dick Nixon wasn't in power. He wasn't in office when he ran against the Democrats. Really, nobody was in office because Lyndon Johnson was president, but he decided not to run again. So there were riots, but there was also just a sense that it was an open seat. And... The Democrats couldn't control the violence. They were also victims of the violence. Remember, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated right after he won the California primary in June 1968. So Richard Nixon was appealing because he was an outsider. Trump has a couple of different challenges. Obviously, no third party candidate. He's also in office uh, right now, which means that you're not bringing someone in from the outside right now to restore order. You're dealing with order that has collapsed while he's in office. Now, it's not because of him. It's happened in Democrat cities. It's not happened in Republican states. It hasn't happened in, in Republican-run cities. It uh, hasn't happened in Washington, D.C. When it started in D.C., Donald Trump brought in the National Guard, which he's entitled to do because it's governed by the federal government, uh, even though it has a local mayor. The, the issue for Trump is this. Many Americans wonder whether what's driving the chaos is conflict. And Trump pushes back. Trump fights back. So there is a sense that some Americans have, including conservatives, that Trump keeps the temperature up on these confrontations because he resists, because he fights back. And so unfairly, because he's trying to fight back against the people who start the violence and start the terror, um, there are people who say, why are you fighting? Just give up and this will go away. Um, other people are saying you need to fight harder and, and crush it. So he's in an impossible dilemma where if he takes steps that look stronger, like he did in the early days, and I think those steps were effective, as I've said, then he will get castigated as some kind of a dictator or authoritarian. 
in, in, in effect, the military has told them he can't do it. I mean, all these generals and ex-generals coming out and distancing themselves from the president, it, it, it's really remarkable, uh, undemocratic, I would say, and also it's tied his hands. He can't really do much more than he than he um, has already done. And then, of course, you know, on the other side, you have people saying, well, we need Trump to compromise, to reach out a hand in reconciliation, turn the temperature down. But every time he does that, it gets rejected. Democrats are fomenting this outrage. They're denying the president an ability to achieve any kind of reconciliation. Look what they did last week with the prison, uh, excuse me, the police reform bill. Tim Scott, Republican, proposed police reforms the president supported, and the Democrats wouldn't even allow a debate on the bill. They don't want to solve the problem. They don't want to take the temperature down. This suits their political interests, they believe. So if the American people choose Trump on a law and order basis, it's only going to be because the left goes too far, these attacks on the statues and the attacks on free speech, and because they feel that Biden is essentially the puppet of the left that there's nothing he can do to stop it. And I think that that might actually be a winning argument in the sense that Joe Biden does not seem to be an effective leader of anything. He does seem to be more moderate in temperament. He does seem to be taking the coronavirus seriously, although uh, in a hysterical sort of sense, you know, never really emerging from his basement, wearing a mask all the time. You know, people want to see their leaders taking precautions. Maybe some people would prefer to see Trump wearing a mask on occasion. But Biden is selling people a version of the, of the future that's governed by fear. And he's not really leading anyone out of that fear. So I think if there's anything that Trump can can gain from this, it's the sense that the party as a whole is is just completely off the rails, the Democratic Party, and that Joe Biden can't rein it back in. Well, I am very scared about how things will go in November not just for America's sake and Canada because we're your next door neighbor and closest friend, but everywhere around the world from China to the Middle East to Iran to North Korea to India, the entire world. There's so many evil forces rooting against Trump and I'm sure more, I mean, we had the whole Russian misdirection for three years about Russian influence. I think there really is some influence in the United States. I think China would like nothing more than to get rid of Trump. He's the first president to ever stand up to them. I am very afraid as a foreigner for what will happen. I think Donald Trump's re-election is actually more important to Canadians than whether or not Trudeau is re-elected. I know that sounds in some way um, self-abnegating or something, but no, I think Trump's re-election is economically and in terms of peace and uh, civilization actually more important than a Canada's own election for Canada. Last word to you, Joel. Well, we are staring down the barrel of a red November, and I don't see how we recover from that politically if Trump loses, because Democrats have made it clear. I mentioned the Tim Scott bill. They're not interested in solving the problem they've identified with policing. They just want the issue. So that tells me they want to keep fermenting this sort of unrest. Then they started defunding the police in various cities. They've abandoned policing in the Oakland School District. They're disbanding the police in Minneapolis. They are cutting a billion dollars from the New York City police budget, and even that's not enough for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So they're going to dismantle institutions of law and order. And finally, they are going to permanently alter the rules of the game. The proposal to make Washington, D.C. at least partially a state, to make a 51st state, was passed by the House of Representatives last week. 
they know it's not going to pass the Senate under Republican control. But if Democrats win the White House and the Senate, as well as the House, they will pass D.C. statehood. They will create a 51st state, which they can do under the Constitution. And that will mean permanent additional two senators from the Democratic Party, because D.C. is so heavily Democratic. They will elect two senators from this tiny, tiny state who would be smaller than most American cities. And they will have two senators from this little, little place that will create an almost permanent majority for Democrats in the Senate. So what they're going to do is a complete socialist revolution. Uh, you know, before I thought maybe it was a little whimsical to suggest that. Now I believe it's 100 percent true. They're, they're going to create a, a new Democrat-held Senate. They're going to knock away the filibuster, so get rid of minority protections in the Senate. And they're just going to pass whatever they want. It's going to be Green New Deal, amnesty for illegal immigrants, you name it. This is going to be a socialist revolution. They'll rewrite the histories afterwards so that those of us who remember things a little differently will be called racist. We won't be published. We won't be heard. And they will tell themselves, the country and the world, that this was the second American revolution, that this was the uh, socialist revolution to correct all the flaws in the original model. That's what they can taste already. That's what they feel is happening. Uh, the Democrats want a second American revolution. And on current trends, they're going to get it. Unless there's a silent majority out there that stands up, that connects to one another, despite the attempts to shut down social media, to shut down the Reddit pages, to kick people off Twitter, to ghettoize people in conservative-only media spaces. If people can overcome that and people can still go into the voting booth or vote by mail, if they have the courage to do it without fearing that their vote's not going to be counted because of all the schemes the Democrats have cooked up for coronavirus, then Trump can be reelected. He will probably be reelected again as a minority president in the sense that he won't win the popular vote. He'll have to win the Electoral College. But right now, the pressure on him and his supporters is so relentless that this feels like a bitter and difficult struggle. And you asked me about the president's tweet, the lone warrior. He's not alone. There are a lot of people fighting with him. But the feeling of being under siege is palpable. And we are living through a time of terror that will only get worse. The violence may stop, the riots may stop, the protests may stop, but the fear will continue if Democrats win. I do think this is a world historical moment that the success or failure of our democracy depends on this election. And I didn't think that you could get more consequential than 2016, but I do think this is a test of whether we can keep this republic. You know, Nancy Pelosi likes quoting Benjamin Franklin, a republic if you can keep it. She's busy destroying it. And that quote is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Essentially, we're in a situation where the country is going to sink if Democrats win. They've made their intentions absolutely clear. We're facing a second American revolution. And it's something that worries us constantly now on the right. And a lot of the anxiety you see comes from a productive place. People are anxious about finding solutions for this. There's still time to turn it around. But the degree of isolation, I think, that individuals feel right now comes out of a sense of being unable to communicate with one another through the media, through social media. The search engines have changed. Google and others are quashing traffic. So we are engaged in a war where almost all of the weapons are on the other side, and all we have are principles and reason. Well, that is the most terrifying thing I think I've heard this year. 
and I can't disagree with a word of it. By the way, uh, Joel's new book is called Red November. Will the country vote red for Trump or red for socialism? And we'll put a link to the Amazon page where you can buy that book if you want to be terrified as I am right now. Joel, great to see you. Thanks for your sobering words. Boy, I think you're right about that. Red November, go ahead and get it on Amazon in the link below. Thanks, Joel, great to see you again. Thank you. All right, stay with us, more ahead. Hello, my friends, welcome back. On my monologue last night, Tyson writes, does not matter who you are or what you have done, if you say the wrong things, they destroy you. If you say the right things, then momentarily say a wrong thing, they destroy you. I think that's generally right, but there still is a special pass given to the fancy people. I mean, Justin Trudeau, the black-faced prime minister, still sits as prime minister. Gerald Butts, his right-hand man, made an extremely racist post the other day talking about white Congo and rape central and no consequences for him. So I think there's a lot of double standards too. Bruce writes, peaceful protesters, eh? That's like saying somebody was peacefully assaulted. And I wish all good Canadians had guns to defend themselves from this increasingly crazy world. I envy Americans and their right to bear arms. There's a limited right in Canada to bear arms. It's being infringed constantly uh, by politicians. But the way you have to store your guns here and your ammo there and under lock and key, it almost makes self-defense impossible. Um, unless you're breaking the law on how you store your guns, you'll probably be charged. On my interview with Leighton Gray, Wendy writes, Mr. Gray needs to push back and restore his reputation, not for himself, but for all of us. Yeah, you know, I mean, who am I to tell an accomplished judge? He's a Queen's Counsel. That's what QC means. So he has been bestowed that title from the Justice Minister for excellent service, excellent lawyering. So he's a senior guy. You can just tell. Um, he was on the Judicial Appointments Committee. He was on uh, the Law Society Committee. He, I think it's so clear, he was falsely defamed. And it was a hit job by a left-wing lawyer and the CBC. They're really going after any minority who's conservative. But I can't make him sue. He's a lawyer, for goodness sakes. He knows more about the law than I do. If he won't sue for defamation, what can you do? I wish he would. Maybe he's not conflict-oriented in that way, although he is a litigator. I hope he sues. Frankly, I hope the thing is made right. And the only way I see that happening, frankly, is for Jason Kenney to appoint him to the provincial court. And I'd like to see Rachel Notley and the other left-wing progressives demand that an aboriginal lawyer not become a judge. Actually, I wouldn't like to see that. I would hate to see that, but that's what we would see. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow. We'll have a show tomorrow. We always have shows on holidays. We record them in advance sometimes. Have a happy Dominion Day tomorrow, Canada Day as others call it, or as the Halifax Chronicle Herald calls it, a triggering event. I don't know if you saw that. Did you see this front page of the Halifax Chronicle Herald and other newspapers published by that odious company? They take millions of dollars from Justin Trudeau's media bailout, but they literally publish a trigger warning. Hey guys, inside is the Canadian flag for July 1. They won't even say Canada Day or Dominion Day. They have a trigger warning warning for the maple leaf, the most innocuous symbol. There's no historical cross on it like the old red ensign. There's, there's just a maple leaf, but they give you a trigger warning. 
I look forward, I, I shouldn't say this, but I look forward to when all those newspapers close because we don't need that anti-Canada hate speech. Am I doing that right? All right, until tomorrow. <laughs> Keep fighting for freedom.